In today's episode, we talk about applying classical wisdom to business and life, what's important in life, breaking out of the matrix, business strategy and planning, and more. I hope you'll enjoy the show, and I really appreciate any support that you could give me today uh, with spreading the word about the show. That includes giving us a share or, of course, hopping on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a review. Thanks again, and I hope you enjoy the show today. Welcome to the Renaissance Wisdom Podcast, where ancient and modern wisdom come together to create a better way of living. I'm your host, Shane Sorensen, and each week we speak with successful people from a plethora of disciplines in search of wisdom from their own lives. Your own personal renaissance begins today. Let wisdom be your guide. everybody. Welcome to the Renaissance Wisdom Podcast. I'm your host, Shane Sorensen, and today's guest is going to be Jared Goler. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Shane. So I'm, uh, I'm excited to have you on, uh, just to kind of give everybody a little bit of background about uh, who Jared is, and I'll let him tell you in his own words as well. But uh, Jared's been working with me for, uh, I guess, the last six months or so, revamping, revamping my website, uh, helping me with some strategy. We actually uh, haven't haven't released any information yet, but there's going to be a merchandise line that'll be coming out soon. So you'll be able to get things like uh, shirts and hoodies, and we're going to have a collectible coin. Uh, so Jared has helped me out a ton with that, just you know, with with branding, with concepts, with getting everything in line. So um, a lot of what you're going to be seeing coming out here soon from the Renaissance Wisdom uh, podcast, and also just through the website. Uh, Jared has been involved with. So um, starting off, uh, Jared, why don't you just tell us a little bit about uh, yourself, your background? Oh, all right. Sure. And also, yeah, coming soon. A lot of things are possible. But uh, so for me, the, uh, you know, for my background, I was born and raised in New Jersey. So from the U.S., just like pretty much, I assume all of your listeners. And uh, I went to you know Penn State for economics and management information systems, and then kind of floated around in a lot of different industries. So I've worked in liquor, so from tequila to sake, uh, all the way to analytics. And now with, you know, my company Maximus Digital, as well as other work in real estate, I, you know, that's kind of where I fell into now. So there's always been a data component to what I've done. But, um, you know, I'm sure a lot of listeners would know like Avio and Tequila, which I worked for previously, and Toll Brothers from a home builder standpoint. So those are some probably big brand names that you know, would resonate with a lot of people. Okay. And um, so why don't you also tell us about, you know, obviously I mentioned that, you know, we've, we've been working together over the, the kind of recent, you know, last six months or so. Um, tell, tell us a little bit about uh, like Maximus uh, Digital and everything. I think, you know, I, I love your idea as far as mixing kind of like a classical inspiration with modern business and extracting lessons from, you know, classical wisdom in the classical world. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that too? Yeah, absolutely. So Maximus Digital kind of started from basically uh, my first client was my father-in-law. So that was like, you know, my starting like, oh, maybe there's like a little bit of an entrepreneurial, I can like solve a problem and get paid for it kind of thing. And, uh, you know, was, I came up with the name just because my favorite movie was The Gladiator. So, mm. you know, I always like kind of resonated with that not only that movie because there's some stoic components to it and i like stoicism but also just i kind of liked 
that there was like this chivalry or this kind of like, you know, commitment towards a higher ideal. So that was kind of where I valued it into the name. I mean, in terms of what Maximus is, I think it's kind of evolved over time where, you know, now our goal is to, you know, help businesses operate more clearly, which kind of goes into like brand strategy or various action words. So, you know, the goal of it is to think, design, build, integrate, and automate. So the thinking portion is obviously the strategy, like we mentioned, and then everything else kind of falls into place after that, after you have a clear objective of what you're either trying to do from a personal standpoint, if it's a personal brand, or if it's a business, what the company is trying to go towards. Now, bringing in the classical components, I don't know, I've always liked myths or just mythology, as well as just, you know, listen, I've just finished reading a book by James Mattis, his uh, Call Sign Chaos, and he kind of talked about if you have a problem, look back far enough, and you'll probably find someone that already had that problem, and it's like, sure. you, you'll have a solution to it. <clears throat> so I like bringing those kind of things into it, because, you know, if you read enough, you'll find out that a problem that you're just facing, someone else already faced. And, you know, you can use some of that logic to Grow, not only grow, but like not make the same mistake because we've probably all are just doing the same thing in a different way that someone like a long time ago already encountered. Sure. Yeah, and I, I love, um, like you mentioned the, the myths that there was actually, uh, I, I mentioned this a little bit in the book too, but there was actually a piece that was written um, kind of like in defense of poetry. And there was, there, there were a lot of people in the church who thought, at the time, you know, during the Renaissance and like towards the end of the Middle Ages that, you know, piece, pieces of work like Homer, for example, they were, you know, they were heresy because they, they led people away from God. But um, and they also said that they were kind of inherently built on lies because none of these things actually happen. So it's just it's kind of like deception for its readers. But, you know, there was a defense made that essentially like these these were instructive. They they use a story, they use a, uh, a situation to kind of give someone a lesson in a way that's more palatable than just sitting around and reading philosophy, right? Because as much as, you know, you and I may enjoy philosophy, there are a lot of people who just the idea of philosophy puts them to sleep. So, you know, something, something like the Odyssey may be able to pass on lessons. And especially when you look at like how, how myths got passed down over time, it was basically all through word of mouth. It was, like, you know, Homer's works were just a collection of stories that had probably been told for, you know, decades or, you know, even uh, centuries. So they all got put together into this kind of like long oration chain that became a lesson that became like in embedded in society at the time. So, yeah, I like that component also just because I like Joseph Campbell and Carl Jung. I don't know if you follow mm -hmm. them at all, but, you know, if you look at it and you know, some people may have watched like on Netflix, what Graham Hancock's new thing that came out that, uh, you know, like, and he kind of says in there that, you know, myths are stories that we pass down so you can understand lessons. And then I kind of tied into my thought on it where there's certain archetypes. Like if you look at Campbell with the hero's journey or just certain ways that people operate that like those lessons get instilled quicker than if you just tried to get someone to like, read a dissertation on philosophy or like a right. lecture, you know, like it's just, some of them are just so ingrained in us, I think in our DNA that it's easier that way. 
Yeah, you, you had a post uh, a while back. I think it was one of your earlier posts too, but um, it, it was, you know, be beware of sirens in your business, which I really liked, right? Like you're, you're using the idea of the the siren, like something that people probably remember from, you know, middle school when, when we all kind of like read the Odyssey or whatever. And like you're, you're taking this and you're, you're giving someone a real world example that helps them to understand a deeper lesson that like you, you have to kind of be aware of the things that may look shiny and tempting to you, but they're actually going to be harmful to yourself or to your business or, you know, whatever you're talking about. Yeah. And for that post, it was also about like shiny object syndrome. Yeah. Which, I mean, in the corporate world, I think like everyone tries to find a new tool to like, or I guess in your personal life, like look at all the weight loss ads, right? Yeah. Like what's the, what's the real solution in a lot of those instances, a clear objective and then hard work, right? Yeah. Like you want to find a clear path and go towards there. But on, on the other side of it, it's like it, the thing that looks pretty or the thing that could be the silver, I guess, was it the silver bullet or the, the golden the it's really goose. a golden handcuff, but it's like the gold, the gold goal, I guess, mm-hmm. sometimes just kind of kills you because it's just a different name, but really it's a siren. You know, it's singing to you and you want to hear it and then you end up crashing. For sure. It's, it's like the, uh, the six minute abs, right? Like everybody wants to know, like, what's, what's the trick thing that I can eat and like have, have abs? Like what, what's the thing that I can go do in the gym for 10 minutes and like ha- have that body I always wanted. And it's like, you know, the. The real answer is there. There is no, there is no little trick. It, it's a bunch of habits that go in, and over time, you're dedicated to them, and they produce a result. Yeah, I mean, but that also kind of goes into like energy, you know? Sure. Like you can't, you can't put all of your energy everywhere, but you try to. So you have to limit your choices in order to then deliver on whatever you're looking for, to do, and that kind of goes in everything. Which I mean, it goes back to kind of stuff we talk to talk about all the time. It's like philosophy is helpful for you to find a way for you specifically to live a good life, right? Like in your, in your definition of what that good life is. And, you know, some of that kind of rolls up, could roll over into business. It could roll over into your personal life, your friendships, et cetera. And like, you just can't be everywhere at once. Cause then you're nowhere. I don't know who said that, but that's definitely not a quote by me, but uh, you know, like taking that into account, you need to then channel where you're going to then harness that energy and then slowly build on top of it so you can juggle more and more things. And I think people try just for the quick answer because they have a lot of wants and it's really coming back to, you need to kind of limit them in some, some perspectives or channel it into one thing at a time. Sure. And then, and like, that's, that's a lot of what you're doing at, you know, Maximus digital essentially is you're, you're helping kind of guide businesses or influencers or whoever it is to kind of figure out, all right, like where, where are the most effective places to put our energy and you know, what, how do we need to phase this out? How do we need to kind of set up processes so that we can, you know, create actionable goals, right. As opposed to just feeling like there's just kind of energy going everywhere and it's misdirected. Yeah, exactly. And also most of our clients are super busy own multiple businesses or multiple things that they're working on. So how do we get them to commit to maybe two or three things that they say they want this year? And then you can kind of reverse engineer from there. Like, okay, if you say you want to go get this, we need to do this, this, and that to get there. Can yeah. you, do you agree that that's reasonable and something that you could, you know, manage or do or help us do by providing us the information we need? And if they say no, then you say, okay, well, we need to start back at the top and 
you know, come down a little bit and channel into what you can do. And I mean, that kind of, it's kind of how you and I talk too. When we first start off, you got a lot going on. Yeah. So it's how do we get both of your accounts to where you want them to be while not, not maybe overburdening you with the amount of content requests of things in your head. Right. Yeah. And like, it, it's, you know, something that I've experienced thinking about this podcast, like this podcast is something I've been thinking about doing for pr probably over a year. And typically when I have like an idea in my head, I'm very careful not to overreach myself or like overcommit to something that I can't deliver. Like I'm the type of person that a, a lot of people will be like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. And then they just, they never do it where I'm the type of person where I'm, I'm going to say that I'm going to do very few things, but once I've kind of made up my mind that I will do something, I'm very committed to it. And, and up into that process, there's a lot of thought that goes into it. Like I, I kind of have an idea in my head where it's like the first step is having an idea, like something that you want to accomplish or something that you might want to do. The second step is kind of thinking through of like all of the benefits and all of the potential drawbacks and like some of the obstacles that you'll face. So like, for example, with the podcast, I'm like, all right, what are the benefits? And I, you know, I talk to people who are doing podcasts. I read books about podcasts. I kind of research and get a better idea of kind of what I'm actually trying to expect. And then, you know, the next thing is think about, all right, like now that I have a better understanding of what I would be doing, let me try to think about some of the obstacles, you know, like, and with the podcast, one of the big things that kept holding me back in the beginning was just time. No, yeah. like, no matter how much I wanted to do it and I saw the benefits, I'm just like, I, I just didn't have the time to do it. And I finally reached a place where I'm like, all right, like, how can I make the time? Because I, I started to see enough of a compelling case that I should do it. And then it's like, all right, well, you know, maybe it just means I'm going to have to sacrifice an hour of sleep on the days that I do recording and, you know, a couple of days a week so that I can do some editing. Um, and I think like when you, when you prepare yourself too for the worst case scenario, like when you, you're like, all right, like it's going to take me, you know, three hours a week for like editing and it's going to take me, you know, three hours a week, you know, for produ production and, uh, you know, three hours a week for recording, you plan for kind of the worst case scenario. A lot of times I feel like you're, you're more adequately prepared to actually do the thing that you've been thinking about doing. I think that's. That's true in like so many things. Like if you think about it, it kind of like does that, I don't know, I follow like, we, we follow so many different philosophy accounts probably with quotes or different things to look at where you see some of them like, what, like I like Jack Butcher with Visualize Value. I don't know if you've seen him, but he did one like mm -hmm. on mo motivation versus consistency. Okay. So I wonder if like your planning kind of curbs your motivation, not like in a bad way, but like when someone's first motivated about something, they really look, try to go gung ho and then they get hit by the, that energy dip. The reality. And, uh, yeah. Reality kind of kicks in. That's fair. Yeah. And basically they either drop it. Like it's like a new year's resolution. Like it's a perfect example of, you know, a motivation versus consistency. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think you preparing yourself and planning is like, can I commit full energy to this? Right. Yeah. And then from there you can then see how you can consistently deliver on it by accounting that time into your life. Like, is it, are you sacrificing sleep? Maybe. Are you sacrificing other things that you could be doing? Absolutely. But you know, you just figured out that if the juice is worth the squeeze, you can then do it based on that research you did before taking the action. Right. 
I, I struggle with that though, because like the planning part, I do a lot and I think a lot, but sometimes that takes away from just taking action or committing. So like that's where like I kind of balance where it's like, okay, which one should I have to do? Sure. I I read this book uh, recently. It's called uh, On Grand Strategy. I can't remember the author's name, but <clears throat> if you've never read it, I definitely recommend it. Um, it. It's pretty cool because he he looks at a lot of different points in history. I mean, he looks at like World War Two. He looks at like Rome and Greece, and uh, it, it's sort of like strategy from a war perspective or from like a battle kind of standpoint. But it it applies to life also, and something that he hits on that I think a lot of people miss is that like in each chapter, whichever point he's trying to produce, he'll, he'll show one side of viewing and another side of sort of viewing like the, the same thing. So like, for example, he talked about, uh, he, he talked about like the battle with, uh, Xerxes, um, from the, uh, the Persian empire and like with the Spartans. And yeah. he, he was talking about like how, Xerxes had this like general who essentially was trying to talk him out of this battle. Like he's like, listen, like just, just the ships that we're going to go through, like the amount of like manpower that we're going to have to do to do this. Like, even though we overwhelm them, he's kind of like saying the juice is not really worth the squeeze. And yeah. Xerxes was kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum. And he was like, he, he was so obsessed with his legacy and his ego that, you know, when there was like this bridge that collapsed and he had his soldiers go out and whip the water to try to, to try to like punish the river. Like he thought he was literally a God that he could punish the river. And, yeah. you know, his point was that the, you know, the golden mean, right. The middle path is, is somewhere in the middle, right. You have to have that kind of like impulsive part of you. That's like, no, like today is the day. If I don't do it today, I'm never going to get it done. But you also need that sort of pessimistic voice in the back of your head that's like, no, listen, like logistically, this is going to be a nightmare. And I, I guess maybe it's kind of like those two sides working within you that that allows you to be successful because, you know, the person who's too impulsive, like Aristotle would have said, they're they're brash. They just they run into the battle with their seat, their shield down and they just immediately get killed. But then, yeah. you know, there's someone else that's a coward and they, they won't even get into the battle. So it's. It's balancing those two voices, I guess. Yeah. And then I think it's like a tension and release kind of thing too, you know? Yeah. Like in a lot of things, it's like a push pull that kind of like drives you forward. But you also like, and I just finished reading 48 Laws of Power by Robert Greene. Yeah. Which yeah. some people have varying opinions on, but there was like one point that it was for the Xerxes example. It's like, it's amazing what a lot of people do after their fathers, you know, like, I think what his father built a great empire. So instead he wanted to build an even greater empire to get out of his shadow. Right. Sure. So for him, that caused him to overextend himself and, you know, and we're going into more of like, I guess that military kind of strategy portion in that, but by overextending yourself, like bringing it back to 48 laws of power, they were basically talking about how most of the time after a large victory, you want to reconsolidate your energy again. And then that way, then expand after you've consolidated and condensed everything. Because if not, then you kind of, I mean, look at the British Empire, right? They got so big and then eventually overextended themselves. And that's why they collapsed in a lot of, lot of examples. I mean, obviously the final nail in the coffin was after World War II, but you know, it, you could do that in anything in life. Some people overextend themselves on money. Some people overextend themselves on commitments and then burn out like, 
you just need to like be cautious of that and then when you push out after you you feel like you've gotten whatever you're looking for kind of settle down and then go back into it right yeah, and again, I guess like this, this is all kind of, this is what you do as far as brand strategy and, you know, helping with businesses as well, right? Is it's, <clears throat> you know, there, there's phases where you're launching a new product or you're rebranding or you're, you're doing a certain thing and then you kind of have to stop and regroup and look at what you're doing. And, you know, I, uh, in my experience in, you know, in the gym industry, doing what I do, you know, for my day job, um, you know, we, we've run into a lot of a lot of people who are like small business owners that own little gyms that, you know, they bought like an anytime fitness franchise, or maybe they just had like a an individual franchise of themselves. And it, it's amazing how often these people don't even like think about business, like they're business owners, but they don't even think about it. Like they just, you know, someone that was like a, a doctor or, you know, a lawyer and they save up a bunch of money and they're like, okay, now I'm going to, quit my job because I hate it and it's soul sucking and I'm just going to like own a gym and I'm going to stick some guy at the front desk and pay him minimum wage. And like, I'm just going to get a check every month. And, uh, you know, it's, it's so often that you see this situation and then it's, you know, the, the person's been running the business for a year and now, now they're working at the front desk and they're, they're running the gym themselves and they're putting in 50, 60 hours a week to run this gym so that they can make, you know, 40 or $50,000 a year of profit. Um, and it's it really is amazing like how many people are in business or are business owners and they've never stopped to think about like business from from like a larger perspective to kind of zoom out and look at what they're doing and strategize a little bit yeah i mean for that one i kind of feel like that's like the adage you can't work on your business when you're in your business yeah you know like they're so ingrained in the day to day that you can't take a step back and go, okay, well, what is the actual goal a year, two, five, et cetera, from here? And like for that, uh, the things I like to do is like give canvases. I don't know if you've ever seen them, but like a lot of, it's become a little more popular now, but there's a lot of like one page, one pagers for various purposes within the business. That's like, Hey, if you can't put this on one page it, and condense it down to that, it's, no one's going to read it, number one. But number two, it means that you don't, you didn't fully think it through to be able to break it down into a short strategy. Sure. So for me, like, that's kind of how I think of all of it is like, how can we ask questions to then do some deep thinking to then say, hey, this is where you need to go. Oh, this is where you need to go. Excuse me. And this is why. And it be within three sentences explaining either the, what the business does, what the product offers, and then doubling down on that and distributing that as much as possible after it's released before going on to the next thing to make sure you, you squeezed every ounce out of whatever you're trying to offer. That makes sense. So like, what is it specifically about, um, you know, about like classical learning or classical teaching, the myths, the things like that, like, what is it specifically that you think is so valuable for, you know, somebody today in the modern world, right? Like a lot of people might say, well, you know, like, for example, like the, the Iliad or the Odyssey, you know, that that's great. But, you know, that that was a thousand years ago. Like, it doesn't really have any value today. You know, what, like what what would you say to someone like that? Um, uh, that's a tough question. I yeah. think oh, it's it's easy, but it's hard because you want to give a better answer than probably what I'll give. But um, I don't know if you've ever read the book, The Fourth Turning. 
mm-hmm. it's kind of a darker book of like a prediction of like all the unravelings of history through archetypes. I think okay. I actually have it on my desk. But it's by uh, William Strauss and Neil Howe. It's about like psychology and zeitgeist, which I never heard that word before. And then I was like, oh, what is that? I need to learn about it. Kind of like what you do when you have an idea for, you know, like the podcast, you just dig in on something that you really want to know. It's kind of like a paradigm, uh, right? Zeitgeist? Like it's kind of like the collective like consciousness or like the... Yeah, it's the collective consciousness of a society or a civilization or in this case, the, the theory is the world. Well, he really does it for the U.S. only, but I think it kind of can parallel into the whole world's thought on things. Sure. But the takeaway I got from the book is that basically I think life kind of goes in spirals like that up. Mm-hmm. Or if you think of a spiral staircase walking up that, you know, we're just adding on to whatever happened already. But there are some parallels into everything since the beginning. So... All of those myths that you're reading, all of those stories from the past, any philosophy, et cetera, whether it's even if it's nihilism or anything like that or existentialism, like there is inherent value of learning from someone that's already experienced it before you have. Mm-hmm. So, like, yeah. could you use it to avoid pitfalls? Could you use it to leverage yourself into a better position by learning from their mistakes or their successes? You know, Take their experiences rather than having to use experience to be your your tool to learn. I mean, you're still going to have experiences to learn, but maybe you can mitigate the amount of like failures or setbacks that could have just been avoided by reading or just remembering those stories. Yeah. <clears throat> so now, yeah, I guess that's my my answer in a long form. But I think you could you could have so many because. Like, look at the Odyssey, how many trials and tribulations it is. Like, the suffering made Odysseus better. Yeah. It sucked, for sure. But, you know, that's that's life. Yeah. It, it reminds me of, like, uh, and I know you're really into Stoicism, right? But it, I, I think about this, there's, like, a long kind of, like, passage quote by Epictetus in the uh, Enchiridion where he talks about, like, Hercules. And... Uh, you know, he, he essentially says, you know, who, who would have Hercules been if he just would have laid in bed and just like been in, been under the blankets and like had a bunch of food and just sat in front of the fire. Like he, he wouldn't have been anyone, right? Like no one ever would have known about Hercules. He, he'd just be another guy that was laying in bed and lazy. It was, you know, it wasn't his strength or his, you know, kind of these like special God-given abilities that he had that made him great. Right. Like it was the fact that he went out and tested himself and through the tests and the trials that he overcame, that was what essentially allowed him to build the legacy of who he was and kind of show who he was. So, um, you know, it's kind of the same thing, right? If like if you never test yourself in life, if you never go through anything difficult, how are you ever going to really know what you're made of? Yeah. And I mean, if you look at that, then you look at Marcus Aurelius, who said the same thing. He's like, I was not made to lay in the warmth of bed. I was made to go do stuff, basically. Right. And I I think of, was it, there's like another guy, Chris Willicks, I think is his name, that Mm -hmm. like he does podcasts and different things that he kind of touched on that a little bit where it was just, I don't know, he did a quote by Niche on motivation that like, I listen to that every once in a while, but he was just talking about how, you know, basically we were made to go do stuff and act, right? 
like you you're not supposed to just lay in bed and be warm all day but like that's also what drives you to then through growth into anything sure so um Moving on, so we I have a couple of questions, like a, a set of questions that I like to you know ask all of my guests just to um, kind of help people see some of the lessons that you know the, the guests may have like integrated into their lives to their experiences. So um, one of them is like most people who have done anything of any note, right? Which we already kind of talked about. Like a lot of times, you know, greatness is a byproduct of overcoming the things that kind of come up in your life. So um, have you personally had any major setbacks or have you had anything that has come up in life that, you know, kind of inspired you to grow as a person or caused the shift that, you know, you feel was beneficial to you ultimately? Oh man, I think I had two big ones that I would say. First one was like graduating college, which you would think would be exciting, but it's like, you, I had no idea what I wanted to do, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think that that like uh, graduating, there was that like first the high of like, finally I did it. You know, this is what my family wanted for me, which is a great thing. It's right. Like they want the best for you, but also it's, I found school interesting in a lot of capacities, but also like I didn't, just like anyone else, I probably didn't like most of the topics that were being discussed. And still to this day, I would, I would have a bone to pick that there's like no financial liter literacy or accounting or tax yeah. class taken just because I think that that's silly that you have to pay them, but you, you don't know what you're going to pay. But um, I struggled with understanding like, okay, now I have to work for the rest of my life. And I've looked at like, you know, in some jobs my dad has been in and others that, you know, you get kind of the, I'm just can't wait to retire. And for me, I, was, I always kind of was like the black sheep in some ways of my family. I was like, I'm not doing that. There's no way that you can tell me for the next 35 years, I'm just going to grind away nine to five and not at least enjoy it a little bit, you know? Yeah. So I think I did like a lot of soul searching there where it was a lot of challenging, where I really started to read or research a lot more. And that kind of led me on the path towards, I guess now to this day, making Maximus, but that was one big challenge for me. Just like, what do I do now? And how do I not go into a job that's like just depressing or soul crushing for the rest of my life? Right. So that was one. And then the second one is I ended up working in a job. Uh, it was sports betting in New Jersey before it got legal, like fully legalized. That was more horse racing. And I, I wasn't that good at it. I'll be honest with myself on that. But it was also because I reported overseas to a lot of people. So the only like real conversations you would have are kind of like this, right? Video conferencing and you're trying to learn a new system. Mm -hmm. So I ended up getting laid off from that, which was probably one of the harder things to admit that you kind of sucked at something in a long time. Yeah. I mean, sports you get, or jujitsu, you get that immediately. Like you're screwed immediately. Like they, you know, you <laughs> lost and there's just like nothing. Yeah. There's no like black and white, but in a job, like you kind of, you putter along and then suddenly out of nowhere, you know, either you get laid off or fired or, you know, you might not see this coming as well, or you might ra try to rationalize it. And that was kind of a, a challenging one for me that I ended up really second guessing what I wanted to do next. And then luckily for me, Toll Brothers came along and offered me something where I got to learn real estate and home building, as well as my father-in-law, you know, asking me to 
work for him that I kind of learned that that was my niche, my niche in, um, you know, hospitality and that kind of side of real estate. But, uh, you know, I would have never thought I would have ended up there. So maybe it's like the strings of fate kind of pulling you in a different direction. Yeah. And that, now that's the, like, go ahead. Yeah. The challenges on that is just like, can you sit in that and try to take something good out of it rather than like complain, which I've gotten so bad at, like, if you complain over and over again at the same, same problem and you're my friend, I probably just like, will tell you that you need to figure it out. Right. So, uh, I guess that's my, uh, what I've learned from it. Maybe it's a little callous, but you know, like try to take something good from it and reorient yourself. Yeah, it, it really is like, and the reason I always ask this question, the reason I think it's so important is because like, you know, you'll, you'll read things like one of, one of the first like self-improvement books that I ever read was like think and grow rich, right? Napoleon, uh, Napoleon Hill. And he, he says like, within every failure is a hidden seed of success. And that, that was like a mantra that I repeated to myself for so long. And you like tell yourself this thing, but it's different to tell yourself something or to like to read words or tell yourself that it's true than it is to kind of see it and experience it for yourself. Right. Because when everything's going great, like when everything's going good, it's, it's so easy to just be like humming along and you know, you're, you're, you're just, you're enthusiastic, you're happy. You're like, yeah, everything's working out. You believe in fate. You believe that, you know, everything's meant to be. But then when you hit that brick wall of, you know, getting out of college and you're just like, Oh, I, you know, I've been working all this time to get out of college. And it's like, now, now what? Or, you yeah. know, when you, when you get laid off from that job and now you're fa facing kind of like financial dire straits and you're trying to figure out where to go next, when you're in that shit that you're going through, it's, it's very hard to sometimes remind yourself that like, okay, even though I can't see what the hidden opportunity is, I believe that there is an opportunity within this, this setback. You know, and that, that's why I love that question because you just, you see over and over again, how, you know, people hit these walls and then instead of, and I think that's one of the big differences between like someone who's ultimately going to be successful or would consider themselves successful and someone that's not is, you know, someone that's successful looks at that moment and they decide to kind of like be the hero in the story and they decide to take ownership and they're like, I'm going to do the work to look for an opportunity out of this versus someone else that is maybe not successful. They play the victim card and they're like, you know, Oh, well, like I lost my job. Like I, you know, I did my best. I was going there, you know, 50 hours a week and they just laid me off. Like, you know, screw yeah. those guys. And, and then they, they just never do anything. Yeah. I look at that. So you, do you, th you feel, do you feel that that question is kind of like the iceberg, that iceberg meme, yeah. that iceberg picture. Exactly. It's like, all of the creations underneath is what everyone sees on top kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that makes sense. I mean, the only other thing I would add is I feel like, uh, this is Robert green, not me 48 loss of power. Again, sometimes success is the worst, the worst thing that could happen. Yeah. Just because again, we kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, like the overextension versus of, or overreach like Xerxes. It's, it's, Sometimes failure teaches you so much more if you're willing to accept it than 
success ever could because then you start to get overconfident, you get hubris, and that humility from the failure is what maybe could ground you better that you won't do something rash or get overconfident when the success comes later on. Sure. And all food tastes better when it's it's slow cooked, not microwaved. Yeah. Well, it, it's that cycle that you talked about too. Like we were talking about the spiral, right? Is it's like, you know, you're, you're, you start from the bottom and you're, you're working towards something and you're learning and you're growing. And, you know, eventually you kind of get to this point where you feel like you, you've kind of learned everything, you, you know, everything, and then life hits you with that reality and you get, you know, knocked back down. And then, you know, now, now you start learning and growing again and perfecting something. And then you get to the top and then you get knocked back down again. And, uh, you know, if you're, if you're feeling like you've got nothing left to learn, like there's nothing else else to progress in, like you've made it, then you probably just haven't been hit with the reality that you, you know, you need to be humbled a little bit, right? Like pride comes before the fall kind of deal. Yeah. Well, or you're just at the edge of your comfort zone and you're not going to grow anymore. Right. I mean, what's blanking on name dropping philosophers, which is probably good. Maybe I should talk more about my more like myself. But what is it like? The more I learn, the more I know. I know nothing. Mm -hmm. that, that's uh, I'm, I'm sure that's that been it's repeated like a lot. Or Socrates or someone. Yeah, but, there, there's like a Socrates. I think uh, I think like Francis Bacon said something along those lines too. I mean, yeah, that's a common that's a common like theme. I mean, uh, all right, so I'll, I'm, I know you're supposed to be like more interviewing me, but I'll ask you this. Do you feel like if you, when you read things or you just research to try to like, you know, better understand yourself or the life you want to live, that if you hear multiple very smart people say the same thing, you take more notice of it? For sure. Yeah, I mean, when you when you look at all these great thinkers and you see, you know, like out of out of 10 great thinkers, I read their, I read their books and, you know, seven of them mentioned this idea of like humility or you know, the fact that we know very little, I, I think it's definitely worth noting that these people that are geniuses that everybody looks up to are all telling you the same thing, right? Yeah, I think it just like reinforces that multiple different brains that look at things in a different perspective have all come to the same, I guess, truth, or maybe just point of view that it probably is worth looking into a little more deeply. Yeah. That, I mean, that that's wisdom. And that's what we talked about. Like, you know, when I asked you about the classical world, I mean, that's essentially what you, you alluded to, right? Is that there, there is wisdom. And I, I think that in the classical world, I think people had a better access of wisdom because they were less distracted. They, life moved slower. Um, they were more in tune with things like life and death because, you know, death was all around them. People died more. They were a little bit more... I think focused on life. Now, does that, does that mean that there weren't people that, you know, got obsessed with material possessions and wealth? I mean, of course there, there've always, there's always been greed, right? Just, just as there's always been wisdom available to us, there's always been, you know, anxiety and fear yeah. and greed, but you know, in this time, right, people sat more, they reflected more, they read more, oh, they wrote more. Deeply. Yeah. And they, they, touched on wisdom that is still part of human nature today, right? Like we, the same ideas that they used, you know, thousands of years ago that helped inspire people inspire us today as well. Yeah. 
I, I think that the death component is also interesting because I think now in present day, it's in the background, but it's not really thought, pondered deeply or thought of, you know, I mean, like you were saying, I like stoicism the most memento mori kind of say, statement on that, but yeah. I, like it's a debt that we all will pay at one point. Like it's the bill's going to come due. So when you're thinking about what you want to commit to having that in the back of your head kind of gives you the, if I was on my deathbed or the great, the, what on my gravestone, is this something that I want written on there? And then it helps you channel what you actually want to do in the, what, 20, 25,000 days we have left, you know, talking about me, cause I'm you know, 31, what the average lifespans, 80, 85, maybe of like good thought. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there's like 25,000, that means that there's what 20 to 25,000 days left. So what are you going to do with them? Is this something you want to do with them? I don't want to waste that day anymore. Okay. So then this is something I don't want to do. So that's yeah. like, I think they had to think about that a lot more, especially in a shorter period of time. Like you were saying that there was less distractions, more thought on deeply what you wanted to do and then committing that to doing it because you had the, the space and the time to know where you want to channel whatever time you had left in terms of the life expectancy. Sure. And that's actually one of the reasons why I liken, <clears throat> like in my book, I, I liken the modern day a little bit to the Renaissance as well as right before the Renaissance, you know, you had the black death throughout Florence and it, it wiped out. I mean, some, some people say like as much as 70% of the population of Florence. And well, obviously, you know, COVID didn't kill anyone near, you know, 70% of the population. Um, we had this like huge pandemic that went about, you know, the, the TVs at least were talking about death and how the hospitals were overflowing into the streets and all these things. People got, you know, locked into their houses and the, the humdrum of life sort of stopped for a second. I think that it, it woke a lot of people up, right? Like, I mean, some people, you know, just kind of like waited for everything to lock, unlock and went right back to work. But I think there's, there's a little bit of more like self-awareness and consciousness because of that experience. I think that, uh, it's, it's something that we can draw a lot of energy from, you know, as a society. Yeah. I think that it was a reorientation for sure. Yeah. I mean, the other part of it too, is it just shows you the importance of habits. Like once you make something, um, sub, I guess it's the transition from conscious to subconscious. So if you do something long enough, it kind of just becomes second nature, right? But think of your day-to-day -day of, like, what you just get used to. I mean, in a way, it's great. It shows you how great your body is, right, that you're given. But in the other way, it's like, I can't – you stop for a second after a while and actually do the reflection that you needed, which I think COVID and a lot – you know, besides, obviously, you know, being very traumatic for a lot of people with death, it gave you that time and space to reflect on what you wanted to do based on that question of, like, when I die, is this something that's actually worth it? For those that were healthy enough, of course, and it and seeing obviously their loved ones pass away, maybe before their time, that they were able to then go, okay, this isn't this isn't how I want it to be. So now you have what I mean. Now we can go into like buzzwords like quiet quitting and all of that, but yeah, you know, I think it just like it reinvigorated people to see if there's there's other ways to do things 
than what is just normal or new normal or whatever we want to call it. And I think that that's probably in the long run going to be good that maybe there is a modern day renaissance going on. Yeah. To like, you know, to, to take the words of, uh, of Andrew Tate, right? Like it, it kind of like broke the matrix a little bit, right? Like yeah, yeah, everybody was like plugged into the matrix. Like we were good little worker drones. Like everybody was just going to work and then work shut down. And then people had like a month to kind of like get their check from the government and just kind of have this like free money that doesn't exist coming into their pockets. And then, you know, a lot of people like just never really went back to work. You know, a lot of people started like driving for Uber or, you know, they started side hustles and it, it really, it definitely did change things. And I'll say like, from a business perspective, since COVID, it's been really hard for us to find uh, good employees sometimes, like, especially right after yeah. COVID, it's kind of gone back to normal a little bit, but for, for a while there, like we'd try to hire people and no, like no one even wanted to work. They were making like $900 a week on unemployment. So they're like, why do I, why do I want to be a trainer at a gym for, you know, 700 bucks a week if I can sit at home and make 900 on unemployment? Yeah, I think that that's an interesting one. I mean, one of I guess I didn't answer fully. Now, now as we're talking more, you start to remember more. So I think I have another answer on my setbacks one. Yeah. Um, but during COVID, I had a client that was a really a really famous restaurant that uh, you know I ended up having to part ways with, and that was like one of the first big clients I ever had to say thanks, but no thanks. Mm -hmm. So uh, that I think that that was a big set, in a way it was a big setback, but a big learning experience on time. But while working for them at, during COVID and after with how restaurants are set up, you know, I, it's hard to find people that want to work for minimum wage when minimum wage was like, hey, we'll pay you $4 an hour and you've got to hope that you make the money back on tips. You know, yeah. like who who wants to live in that constant, that constant challenge of am I going to make it today where I make enough that it's actually worth my time or did I just sit in like, a, you know a burning wood smelling wood fired pizzeria or, you know, whatever. And, uh, know that my time could have been better spent elsewhere as I'm maybe studying for school or something of that nature. So it's just interesting to see that maybe finally things are starting to crack on that because I do kind of feel like, but going out to eat's very expensive. So, and this is specific to restaurants for the U S but like, yeah, it seems like the European model in some capacities does a better job of paying a living wage and then not allowing the tips and somehow it works out. So maybe there's some common ground that can be found between the business models that maybe there needs to be a pivot there that could, you know, bring people back, back into the workforce. I mean, the other part of the workforce thing that I find interesting is, um, I don't know if you listen to Mike Rowe, you know him from Dirty Jobs. I know, I know him from the show, but I, I don't really like follow yeah. him or anything. Yeah, he had a podcast that he was he had an econ an economist on. I forget the guy's name, but he was saying that there's like seven million just able-bodied men that are just not working or not counted towards like the workforce numbers. Mm -hmm. That maybe they're doing gig economy work, like you were saying, where driving for Uber, just not trying to like fully commit to work, like working a full time in the definition by like what the fed or the economic bureaus. Right. But I wonder what you could do to get them back into a type of workforce to better channel that energy towards something good 
whether it's for society or whatever, or what, what is good for society now based on this reflection that's going on? Yeah, it, it kind of makes me think of uh, like Fight Club. I'm, I'm sure you've probably read the book, seen the movie, but uh, you know, like when, when he, he takes all these like kind of disenfranchised, like lonely men that just kind of feel like they're worthless and they, they're like making soap and just, you know, like growing, growing stuff for like to make fertilizer bombs. And it's like, he becomes this little economy. And I think a lot about like <clears throat> kind of the shift that started happening, um, with like production and, uh, especially, uh, like the factory kind of method of just incrementally teaching someone to do this, like kind of redundant task and just to streamline everything. Um, it was so different, you know, for example, in the Renaissance where like someone would, would kind of dedicate themselves to like learning a craft or, you know, being a merchant and they would kind of perfect this skill and they would get, get like a sense of fulfillment from their job because they were improving or they were getting better. They were learning a skill yeah. where it's like now, you know, even a lot of times, like someone that has a, a degree, you know, you, you just go into this job and it, it feels like you're just kind of doing this, like meaningless work, right? Like Amazon, for example, their deliveries, like I know they make decent money at Amazon, but they, they have a whole special division that's set up that just trains employees because they're expecting that they won't have any employees stay past like nine months. Like they're, they're expecting a lot of people to constantly be hired and fired. So they wanted to streamline their process so they could just take anybody off the street and quickly turn them into like an Amazon worker because they know their job sucks. Cause they know that it's like, it produces burnout, but it's still a necessary part of, you know, making Amazon function, for example. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I have a choice opinions on some things in Amazon. I mean, yeah. granted I'm a hypocrite because I do still purchase through them for the convenience, but, um, you know, like any job that ridicules you and makes you pee in a bottle to be able to go run around, to go do stuff, I think needs, needs to re, uh, you know, reorient or recorrect themselves towards what is actually a functioning job or employer employee relationship. But that streamlining probably did help them because of the amount of churn for such a high pace environment too mm -hmm. on that side. So it's probably good from there. The, re the, I think the apprenticeship and the lack of noise back in the day did help because it gave you more time to hone in on a craft. Whereas now, if you look at like chat GPT three and open AI and how it could, you know, basically pass the bar, pass scary, you know, maybe pass what they passed medical school too. Right. Or yeah, they, they did a lot. Exam. Yeah, the bar, and there was like an MBA program. Like, yeah, the MBA one is where I think I find it the most interesting based on this conversation because you're, you're talking about Amazon was like they need to retrain people and be able to bring anyone off the street because maybe the people that are coming in don't have the education that they feel they need, right? Mm -hmm. At the core of the problem. So, I'm curious how many jobs will start to feel like that with how quickly AI integrates into a lot of the different things. If there's enough structured data for the AI to work with in any business that it then causes all of these schools to finally not just teach the same curriculum over and over again, 
with modifications, of course, as things, new case studies and stuff come in, that um, it actually truly transforms the college education program. Because for me, like, I think colleges are so overpriced in, in terms of like the amount of student loans that a lot of our generation has to take on, but also like there is a lot of learning opportunity there that probably now you could just get through YouTube or somewhere else. So what are they going to do to, I guess, innovate to be able to like to circumvent the AI tools or whatever is going to come out to freely educate people? I have no idea, man. I, I just, yeah. <laughs> the whole AI thing really like freaks, it's freaks me out. I know we talked about it a little bit, but, uh, there was a thing I saw like, a couple of years ago. They asked like AI to animate like the future of mankind. And it basically had like mankind slowly turn into a computer. Like it was really crazy. It, it showed like the people and then they like evolved from apes and then, you know, they, they come out and then they're human beings and then they're in the, and they're in these cities and there's like power lines and then like the power lines like slowly started to go into the human beings and the human beings kind of became like cyborgs like they'd have like mechanical components and then eventually they they turned into like the the people all just turned into like power lines and they were like snakes that were like power lines that were all going to this huge supercomputer and the buildings all turned into like modulators on this computer and you think about like the matrix right where you eventually reach this point where the machines are kind of like feeding off of, off of human beings and just like harnessing energy. It's like, when you really think about it, uh, existentially, you know, from like a, a deep standpoint, it's, it's kind of hard to think that maybe it would happen any other way. Yeah. I also find that weird. I mean, I know you're talking, well, you're probably, this podcast is probably canceled now that you just said Andrew Tate. So you know, <laughs> yeah. good luck with that. But, uh, you know, I think it's interesting, like the whole matrix component of like, you know, obviously he's saying that just because of the movie and there's probably a lot of relevance to maybe just how you look at that, look at it, or maybe you're asleep and you don't even realize you're asleep kind of thing. Yeah. But, um, did you ever hear, I can't remember who's the author the the woman i think it was the woman who wrote both terminator and the matrix saying yep yep saying what the terminator was a precursor to the matrix exactly mm -hmm. which like that whole concept just it, it, that, that's wild if you think about it on a deep level and most of those stories like maybe it won't fully go to be exactly like the movie or the book but it's like a theme or a motif in it that like you're you try to comprehend to understand like am i falling prey to just going going with the motions rather than actually living or thinking yeah and i don't know sometimes i think we kind of fall into that trap and just you know go on autopilot and don't then reflect and then like you were saying with covid comes up and you just suddenly realize what would i what was i doing this whole time yeah i i mean i, I think it's just that it's that cycle Right. Like we, we get into routine, we get into a groove, everything's humming along and then something happens and it, it changes your perspective and you, you just see the world differently. And I, I mean, there, there is a lot of, I think there, there is a lot of deep meaning and like wisdom in like, you know, for example, that, that movie where you have all these people that are living this life and they're plugged into something and they literally unplug from this 
this giant set of circuitry and then they realized that the whole life that they were living was just a distraction. And I think that's, yeah. that's a lot of wisdom in the modern age. Like I really truly feel that a lot of this ancient wisdom is it's like, it's like taking that pill. It's that, you know, wakes you up to reality. It, you know, like when you, when you read Socrates, when you read Seneca, when you read, you know, Marcus Aurelius, I mean, there's so many examples, right. But when you, when you touch on the things that are actually important in life, it just makes you realize like how, how many of the things that we focus on today are really just like, just nothing. They're just, yeah. they're just a distraction. You know, we're all obsessed with like money and status and fancy cars and fancy houses and like how, how much of that actually, and we spend our whole lives chasing these things, but how like those things don't really, they don't really mean anything. Right. Yeah. And I mean, that kind of goes into, well, I just got married. So that was, that, that was kind of the big moment for me. And my wife has been like, you know, huge rocking with me to like teach me different ways than I guess unteach some of the, the things you don't like about what your family instilled in, in you, which I think everyone kind of goes through. But, um, and I just read, uh, Musonius Rufus and it made me think of it where it was like the, really the only lasting legacy that you can leave is family. You know, that's like something that should be a core component and matter in your life. And passing that on, you know, is probably the key, the key thing you should do or that's worth it. And I think a lot of people have, myself included, thought like this. Like I previously thought I didn't, I don't think it was necessarily I didn't want kids, but I wanted to be financially ready to have kids per se because of yeah. how expensive everything is. But now it's more you'll figure it out you know like you'll de if you have it going you'll figure it out it, it, there's just no other way like you you adopt these responsibilities which i mean i think jordan peterson kind of has some good points there you know take on responsibilities that's your your duty in a way and uh the rest will like all work itself out if you have to work more if you have to figure you know if you have to cut back on something you, you'll you'll get it all sorted to be able to commit and do that. But in terms of leaving something behind of worth, that's probably something that is worth it in comparison to like owning a Lamborghini. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it, I think it's true, right? It's all about tapping into the things that, you know, matter most. Like I, I know there was a book that came out a while back. It was uh, from like a hospice nurse and she profiled some of the, the regrets that people had and, you know, they're, like no, nobody ever said, like, I really wish I would have been able to buy that Lambo that I wanted. Right. I, I really wish yeah. that I would have bought like another mansion. Right. M most of the people said, you know, I, I wish that I you know would have treated someone differently. I would have spent more time with my my friends or more time with my family or, you know, I wish that I would have followed my dream. And, you know, these are these are all the things that we literally sacrifice in exchange for the income, in exchange for the ability to, to buy the mansion or drive the Lambo or whatever. So, um, yeah, I think it's like, it's what you trade your time for that yes. you have to look back on and yep. either look at it as a mistake that you learned from or a regret. And I think a lot of the materialistic things kind of then end up like when you're 80 or whatever age you are on your deathbed, hopefully it's 80 or older. And, uh, most of the materialistic, short-term oriented thoughts end up falling into the mis 
not the mistake bucket, but instead the regret bucket. And the mistake bucket is normally the actions you took, leaving it all on the line or risking to be able to try to either strive forward or get things that you wanted and learn that either you didn't need them or, you know, that you learned an even bigger lesson of like how to you know live your life better. Yeah. It, it's the zeitgeist you talked about earlier, right? The zeitgeist is like, we're, we're in a consumer based society where we're financial units to a giant corporation, like a, a nameless faceless cor corporation that's, you know, and I, I'm not against capitalism, right? Like I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm for I don't capitalism. Think consumerism is capitalism. Though. It's different. Yeah. Cause I mean, I also would argue, I don't want to go too far into economics because I'll probably get get yelled at. But um, <laughs> I don't think we are in the way that things are decided. If you've ever, there's a George Carlin stand-up quote where he was like speaking, where it's like, "There's five oil companies now. Soon there'll be two, or soon there'll be three. Then there'll be two. But you get was it how many? Twenty six different choices of ice cream at Baskin Robbins. So it's the illusion of choice, right? Yeah. So. There's a really good guy who does like some Substack emails. His name's Matt Stoller that he does like monopolistic, uh, like a whole history of monopolies. And, uh, you know, basically he goes into that, but I think, I think we're too consolidated and there's too much power in big corporate corporations, like even Apple, where Apple has all its money overseas that, you know, obviously the U S government can't tax and it's causing the government to have to get bigger to combat all of these big multinational companies that are getting bigger, that I don't think that that's the way capitalism was supposed to work. I think they were supposed to be a lot smaller entities all working at a uh, more local or municipality level, like the local bank invested in local projects kind of mentality. Right. That you know you don't really have anymore because you have all these big companies that are you know ingesting all the money into the mothership rather than reinventing it or reinvesting it, I should say back into whatever, wherever the money came from. Yeah. It's, so it's, a, it's, it's like dead. globalism, globalism and uh, corporatism more so. Yeah. I would call it crony capitalism. Is, yeah. That's the coin word now. And I kind of think it, it does ring true to an extent and look unpeeling that onion is, well, you could do 95 different episodes on a podcast on that, yeah. but I think it's, it's something to think about because where you put your, at a short-term level for yourself, it's where do I put, where I invest my money, I invest my energy in a lot of ways. Yeah. So do I want to put that towards like, I don't know, a big behemoth of a company that if anything went wrong, they would just tell me to, you know, go pound salt. Or do I want to do it with someone that'll, you know, treat me a little bit better or value me, which is why I think a lot of people are trying to do like the support local kind of thing. Yeah. And I, I think the lesson, you know, ultimately kind of, we, we got a little bit off track, but I think the thing that we're talking about ultimately is just that let's go back to fight club. I, I love that movie. Like you're not your fucking khakis, right? Like you're not, yeah. you're, you're not that pair of pants that you bought. Like you're not that designer logo. You're not the Lambo. You're not, you're not the Instagram story. Like none of, none of those things are you right. And, and none of those things are going to matter when you look back on your life, right? It's, waking up or breaking out of the matrix or whatever you want to call it. Right. That I think really what it is, is just looking at that zeitgeist, looking at 
the way that we've been programmed, that we've been told to, to buy these things, that you have to have these things to have a status and just realizing like you're, you're a human being and the things that matter most to you are, are a lot of times the things that you neglect and waking up is realizing like, I'm going to shift that priority, right? The, the priority yeah. is not going to be the money anymore so that I can take care of my family. It's going to be taking care of my family, you know, like putting ev effort yeah. and energy into my family and being, being a human being and not just being this robot that's just trying to accumulate more junk. Yeah, exactly. I think yeah. that that's definitely, that's definitely what the goal, the goal of all of this is. For sure. So moving, uh, moving into kind of like a little bit more of your personal kind of day to day, um, do, do you have any daily habits or, you know, rituals that are really important to you and just you know, getting things done, being a better, being a better person, anything like that? Yeah. Uh, I like to go to the gym in the morning and met, I, the gym has a sauna. I'm a big sauna guy. So yeah. I like doing like a meditation in a, in a sauna. Just, I think it like clears my mind, but also like kind of purges some toxins in a way. I mean, maybe, maybe it doesn't cause I don't really, I don't really drink that much anymore, but, or really eat anything too poorly, but I like it as like almost, it's like a mental purge. Like, Hey, what do I need to get done today? Let all the minds, th the thoughts come in and I try to get like maybe three to five things that I want to accomplish that are feasible in that. I want to come out of there with like five thoughts I wrote down that I want to just get done today that are core, core goals for the day. Yeah. So I would probably say that those are two. So working out and meditating slash the sauna. Um, and then I try to read at least 20 pages a day. So last year I completed 50 books in one year. So awesome. I want to keep, I want to kind of keep that, that goal every year. Um, I do eventually want to get into a cold, like a cold tub, like we were talking about before, before we started recording. Like, I think that there's so much inherently valuable in that from like just a lifting standpoint as well as recovery. And then the dopamine, which, I mean, we can go into the Huberman podcast. I find him really interesting, but uh, like, I, that's where I heard it from. But I'd like to do, start incorporating that somehow. It's just expensive and annoying to clean. For sure. Yeah. And I, I want to get into the sauna thing, but my, uh, my time is just so jam packed. And I, I looked at getting this little, uh, I can't remember what it's called. It's called, I think it's called like the heat tent. It's a, yeah. it's a thing that's like launching soon. And I, it's like a thousand bucks and you can get this little, like, you know, portable kind of like sauna tent and it's really well designed. I mean, like it, it looks awesome, but then I'm thinking about practically like, you know, essentially it takes like 30 minutes for it to warm up. So I'm like, all right, I'd have to like throw the logs in there, let it warm up for 30 minutes. And, you know, then, then I got to go in and sit in there for 30 minutes. And I'm like, just practically, like, I don't really have that time, but I, I definitely do want to get into the sauna. 30 minutes, but the amount of prep work is anno more annoying than like just being able to walk in when it's already on, you know what I mean? Right. But I think it's harder to own a sauna at home than it would be if you just had a gym that had it and it was sure. already there and it was more easily accessible because one, they're bigger Two, They have like better electricity components if it's an electric one mm -hmm. and you don't have to do all of that wait time that maybe you'd have to wake up in the morning for this example of the tent and turn it on and then go about your day on the other tasks and then go back in 30 minutes later, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, I wish I had one. Um, uh, you know, our gyms don't actually, they just don't have saunas. We're like a smaller kind of like 24 hour gym. Like we have a really good weight selection, but we just don't have the saunas. And uh, it's like, you know, even, even if I said, all right, I'm going to go get like a secondary membership, not at the place that I work. Um, then you still, it's like, all right, well now I've got to sit through Atlanta traffic, which not sure if you've ever been to Atlanta, but Atlanta traffic. Terrible. Yeah. Sucks. yeah the traffic's so, so bad. So you're still talking about, you know, 20 extra minutes to go in and get changed. And, yeah. uh, I know people say like, oh, you just don't have time, but obviously I just, I have, uh, other areas I have to prioritize over that, but someday I'm going to get into a sauna routine for sure. Yeah. It's, I, I love it. I think it's great. I mean, in the, the few times, uh, in the month that maybe I do drink, I drink a lot of water afterwards the next day if I'm hungover and go in there and it short circuits that real quick, which is great. Yeah. But, uh, you know, in terms of just an everyday routine, it's great because I think it really like purges some of, some of the, the gook or the th lack of thought that you need that, you know, I like a lot of my job is like very heavy thinking. So being able to have a clear mind to be able to try to solve the problem, you know, you, you normally do a lot better when you're trying to like either write a report or a program or think of strategy, you know, you're doing all of that. You just, it's good to have a clear mind and not have a lot of like fog. Sure. Um, I know you mentioned reading, obviously, uh, that's, that's a reoccurring theme. Everybody I've talked to they're they're readers, you know, um, what are, uh, what are your top two book recommendations? If you had to pick, you know, two books to recommend to somebody, what, what would they be? Oof. I don't know. I think I'd, it's a tough one. I'd probably say I used a lot of reading to like kind of learn like we were talking about earlier, skills, like right? learn from other, well, I did a lot of reading either for fiction just to like scratch an itch of like, you know, just getting out of your own head. Right. Or a lot of like, not like nonfiction, like his, history or data just to learn the topic. Sure. But when I started to switch into philosophy, <clears throat> I think I started to better orient myself with what I want to do with my life. So if I were to ever recommend books, I probably would recommend ones that I think help others find that rather than just be like, oh, you have to read this book because I really liked it. Sure. So I think the two I would recommend are probably like On the Shortness of Life by Seneca. Yeah. Or uh, Man's Search for Meaning with uh, Viktor Frankl. Just, I mean, so many people probably have recommended those books, but the Viktor Frankl one for me is crazy that like... It's crazy that he was in, I think he was in Auschwitz. Yeah, he was. In a concentration camp. Yep. And still maintained through all of that, the will to live through watching horrendous stuff to then be able to um, make a type of behavioral therapy after, after the war and commit himself to something bigger and then give that to the world. I think there's just something very powerful about that, but also it's just damn impressive. Like it's yeah. so, it's just so wild that he was able to do that and not, not just quit and like almost in a way, and it's like really a weird comment on it that that like horrible event and suffering like almost gave him, he took the positive out of it and was able to then 
give that nugget of wisdom or that education to others. Yeah. You know, on how it's not as bad as it seems, or you can work your way through it. I mean, obviously his was dangerous too, because he could have been put into a, a gas chamber or just shot at any point if he wasn't worthy of being a, you know, a laborer. But I, I think that that book, that book's worth reading. And also the two that I recommend are just, I think they're less than 200 pages. So it's not like you're committing a lot of time to read like uh, War and Peace by Tolstoy, right? Like you can just, you can get through it pretty yeah. quickly. So yeah. this would probably be my two. Yeah, great, great, great recommendations for sure. Um, so do you, do you have any like, do you have any personal heroes or like any, anyone that you particularly look up to? Obviously I know you've done a lot of reading of, you know, a lot of different, you know, successful, inspirational, historical characters, any, anybody that stands out or anybody that like you really look up to or model yourself after? I, I used to have a ton of different people that I like really looked up to or wanted to aspire to be. But then I heard, uh, Matthew McConaughey's, uh, I think it was a Golden Globes or Oscar speech. Yeah, that was a good one. Yeah, that was a good one. Yeah. Where it was just like, who's your hero? And it's like me in 10 years. So it's like, I I think I'm just, I I like that because it forces you to like not compare. You're just trying to get better. Yeah, exactly. And I I think Mm -hmm. it makes it, it makes it more attainable and sustainable. But if I, you know, that's not a full answer to the question because I did have heroes at one point that that are two that I would talk about, you know, fairly frequently. I think two of them would probably be like Churchill, and uh, I read Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink. Yeah, good. Which I mean, I know you're you're a big jujitsu guy, so he's he's a good guy to know, right? Mm -hmm. But I just liked uh, I liked his book, but also like, I think I struggled early on in my life with discipline. So having anyone that's just like own your shit was probably like a good thing for me. So I liked just having him or like David Goggins, like yelling in the back of my head to like, not just be a, I guess not be a bitch and just like, actually I'm probably my brain's fighting me instead of my body. Yeah. So those would probably be the two Churchill. I know he's becoming a little bit more controversial now because he was a big imperialist and he definitely did some awful things in India as well as just in general, when it comes to like colonization and I guess overall racism and, you know, just doesn't necessarily just have to be towards, you know, black people, but it was towards, you know, Indians or anyone that wasn't Anglo. Um, but I think also like you could learn a lot from him from, uh, who's the author that wrote that whole big biography on him. There's a really big biography that I could, I could send you the link to that I read that, you know, just his character, his life arc, if you looked at it as a character arc, is just interesting of like all the failures and different crazy things he did in order just to get to the opportunity during World War II to be the prime minister that actually led Britain and the allies to victory. So like, I think it was like, they called it the lost years or the, whatever they called the, uh, the wilderness years, that's what they called it. And like what he just, he just kept puttering along, doing different things. And, you know, that ended up being that wilderness time taught him how to then act to his convictions. And then eventually, 
you know, you go through all the different famous speeches he had. He, everyone thought he just talked off the cuff, but he prepared for those the entire time. So I mean, there's just some good lessons that you could learn from him. And also I, I like the World War II era just because there were so many, so many stories that were just crazy. Like think of like how much comfort and convenience we have now in comparison to like our grandparents or great grandparents that had to fight during that. Yeah. And I'm a big baseball fan and there's like a famous picture of in one picture. It's just interesting. You have Yogi Berra and uh, Ted Williams, right? And, and, you know, Yogi Berra is one of the most famous Yankees and I'm a Yankees fan just for how many championships he won, but he was on in D-Day and Ted Williams, well, Ted Williams, I think was a famous pilot that had like some confirmed kills, I believe. And it's like, and then they just went back to their day job. You know, which is baseball yeah. back then, which made decent money, but I don't know. It's just it's just a wild time to be interested in. And I, I guess there's a real big reason why it's the greatest generation and there's some people to, you know, hold in high esteem. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Uh th there's definitely there's a lot of uh, a lot of cool stuff in that time period. I mean, just even like like you said, like the the zeitgeist of the time, right? The I think that's my new that's my new like spicy word, zeitgeist. Uh, yeah. I like it, but, uh, you're going to plug it. You're going to plug it in every other question you have now. Yes. Yeah. Um, but it's it, a fun word to say. Yeah. It, it feels like, uh, it, it makes me think of that. Uh, there's, there's like an old SpongeBob episode where they, uh, they learn curse words and they're like saying them back behind the dumpster and they're like, Oh my, like my, my mouth tingles, Patrick. Like, <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it kind of feels like that. It feels like, not like you're saying a dirty word, but it just, it's, it's fun. I feel like we're in California right now saying meta. Yeah. So like meta. So meta. So meta, yeah. bra. <laughs> All right. So wrapping up, uh, here is the, uh, this is the stumper question. This is the one that, you know, kind of, kind of takes people back a little bit. So, um, what piece of advice would you give to a younger version of yourself? You know, whatever kind of period you think you might need to hear it typically I, I feel like a lot of people kind of think of like the early teenage years something like that but if you could go back in time give give some advice to yourself 15 years ago um but what would it be what would you tell yourself um i'd probably i think i touched on a little bit of why i liked uh jocko so much um you know basically my uh i'd probably tell like maybe me when i'm about to graduate in high school and then in college, specifically around the time of like graduating high school, like practice a little more self-control or discipline around a lot of things, you know, and uh, I think I want, would have, you know, don't try to compare yourself to others. I think what comparison is the thief of joy, just because everyone's on a different path, you know? So I think I would try to teach myself all of the, or say to my younger self, all of those things. And it would be an armor or a weapon I could have to defend myself in some situations that I think I ended up falling into through bad habits. So that would sure. be like my lesson or message to send to myself from at a younger age. Okay. And, um, you know, I, I loved talking with you today, Jared. Um, obviously we'll, we'll be speaking more soon too, but, uh, are there, uh, you have any like current projects you're working on or anything you'd like to, you know, throw out 
like tell tell the listeners to check out or anything like that? Uh, I mean, I'm just basically your website, renaissancewisdom.com. Well, it's renaissance-wisdom.com. Yeah. But uh, probably that just because, you know, I'm, I'm pretty committed to that kind of mindset and we talk pretty much every day. Uh, MaximusDigital.co if you need uh, any help with anything from automation to a website design build. And um, if anyone's in the real estate or, or building and doing hotels, ptylighting.com. That's my uh, father-in-law's company, and we're always looking for new projects to either build, whether they're multifamily or uh, hotels. So those would be the things I would plug. And otherwise, that's all I got. That's all I got. That's all I'm working on. Cool. Yeah, we'll talk, definitely talk offline, but it's always great talking to you, actually, for more than the 20 seconds that we have a question. You know, this was, what, an hour and 20? So Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely good. I, I love uh, love picking your brain. It reminds me of a, you know, our, our first kind of conversation we had where we were just doing a basic meet and greet or whatever, and we ended up talking for like an hour and something. So, um, Yeah, yeah. Felt and like I'll, a long-lost brother found. Exactly. And um, I'll, I'm going to put up links too in the description. You know, I'll, I'll link out like your Instagram and, um, you know, the website and all that too. So um, thanks again for coming on. Had a great time talking to you and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk soon. Sounds good, Shane. I'll talk to you later. All right. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Renaissance Wisdom Podcast. And hopefully you learned at least one lesson on today's episode. Our mission here is to uncover practical wisdom to create a better way of living for our audience. If you enjoyed this episode, please help us by leaving the show a review on your podcast platform of choice and by giving it a share on social media. This really helps us to grow our audience and to continue to add more episodes. If you are interested in learning more, please check out our website at renaissance-wisdom.com or check out the book that started it all, Renaissance Wisdom, How to Flourish in the Modern Day, now on Amazon. Thank you again, and may wisdom be your guide.